It's just after 6 p.m. and you are listening to Too Much Information on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and we have a special program for you this evening. Actually, every week is, is always special here on TMI, but tonight we have a live conversation with P.Z. Myers, who is a author of the new book, The Happy Atheist. Welcome to WFMU, PZ. Hello? Hello, glad hey. to be here. Great, alright, we got all of the electronics working. So, thanks for coming on the show. Now, I just want to say that uh, I, too, am an atheist, and uh, one of the primary benefits for of my atheism is that I don't ever have to justify myself or discuss religion or science with with believers, and this is not just self-protection. Uh, Over the years, I've, I kind of have to admit that I have a little disdain and, and pity for those who believe in uh, the bearded men in the sky. But when I was younger, I, I had religious conversations all the time, from growing up with a born-again mother, fleeing the Catholic Church as a teenager, and it was just exhausting to keep getting into debates about who was right and who was wrong. And then, one day... I decided that I would just accept that I was right, and life got instantly better. And then I realized that a moment spent discussing atheism with a religious person was just a moment wasted. So I was very curious, coming to your book, to learn how you, as a scientist, educator, can even bear to stay engaged and open to discussion about religious and, and scientific matters. And after finishing the book, it seems that a lot of the answer is for you that it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, no. I'm I'm uh, I'm a mild-mannered confrontationalist. I I rather enjoy discussing and arguing all kinds of subjects with people. So that's that's one reward is just having the discussion. But another, of course, is it's it's not a waste if you actually convince somebody to step away from God and adopt a more rational point of view. Yeah, but it, it it never really seems that that's that you're really not on the proselytizing track here, no. Well, it, but I am in a sense. Um, you know, it's it's not the kind of proselytization you think of with religious organizations where you go to somebody and you tell them you must think as I do, because all I have to do is go to people and tell them you must think. Period. That's what we have to get people doing. Uh, I'm quite happy if people come to different conclusions than I, I do, as long as they have thought them through and considered what they're actually thinking about. Sure, but, you know, backing up there to this fun, I mean, it, it seems you start off, you know, in, in the introduction talking about how, you know, surveying the landscape, you have to laugh. <laughs> and, and, and in the next hour, I do want to hear uh, about how you remain so mirthful, because, you know, sure, there are a lot of ridiculous religious figures out there. But for everyone that makes us chuckle, there's also the rapists and the criminals who it's a lot harder to laugh at. And that's just the, the flashy, bad end of the spectrum. There's also millions of, of sad, deluded people wasting their lives and their potential in the shadow of, of, of organized uh, religion. But I just want to mention here that we will be taking calls this hour. You can phone us in uh, 201-209-9368 or you can check us out on the WFMU Acu playlist at WFMU dot 
org. But let's start if, with a little about yourself, uh, PZ. Uh, I want to hear about where you live and work. I gather it's a small town with a ratio of churches to bookstores that, that di- you find distressing. <laughs> Why, yes, it is. This is, this is not New York. <laughs> um, I live in Morris, Minnesota, which is a very small town of about 5,000 people way out on the western edge of Minnesota, near the Dakotas. So we're out there in the farm country, the prairie country, and there aren't many of us here. Um, It is a college town, though, so it's a small liberal arts college here, so we do have some intellectual life going on, which is, it's saving grace. That's that's what allows me to live here at all. Uh, But yeah, it's small, it's conservative, they always vote Republican here. It'd be nice to say that we were a little island of blue and a sea of red, but no, I'm sorry, we're more purple here. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, that's one of the reasons I started writing, is this is a way to reach out beyond the boundaries of my little tiny municipality and contact other people with different views. And uh, locally, though, you, you talk about how there are 15 churches in your small town. Yes, population 5,000, 15 churches. I should mention that of those 5,000, 2,000 of them are students. So it's it's even smaller than you might think. Um, and there are these churches all over the place, and there you know, there's this, this fine-grained sectarianness that I just find ludicrous. We have different Lutheran churches. There's like four or five different Lutheran churches. Uh-huh. Little subtle differences in flavor of Lutheranism. Um, there's one Catholic church, and there's a whole bunch of all the other little sects, and you know, the Seventh-day Adventists and all that uh, scattered around. Uh, but it's, it's very peculiar that, that this is, for having 15 churches, it's not a very diverse area. I mean, these <laughs> are all, this is white bread Minnesota, so yeah. it's, you know, Lake Wobegon all over again. They're all Christian. They all consider their little differences to be very, very significant uh, and so we need all these churches, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, as you write about this, you, you do bring up that you also have one bookstore. And then, as we were chatting yeah. earlier, you let me know that it's not even a real bookstore. <laughs> so you have, like, what, a half a bookstore? Right. It's, it's, um, it's a small store in town. It's a good store, but, you know, what it is, it's there to serve the entertainment needs of the community. So they, they uh, sell video games and games of various sorts and they've got a few books and comic books and um, it's sort of the one-stop shopping place for anything that's got words on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do live in New York City. This is New York City. And I I did spend some time, though, in small towns in Colorado and Montana. And I I have to say that uh, my happiness depends on not being there. There's a certain, you know, cosmopolitanism here. You know, we have, sure, we have, you know, some big religious scandals, too. We have the Catholic Church, you know, the, the, that, that whole story. We have the Orthodox Jews putting up signs in Williamsburg telling women to get the hell out of the way when the men are walking down the street. But for the most part, I consider this to be the other United States than the one that, that you live in. And, and, but at the same time, I, I, I would like you to, uh, uh, to, to let us know how bad is it. And you say it's purple there, but you, know, you do spend a lot of time writing about America from the perspective of being an atheist. How hard is it to right. be an atheist in your America? 
Well, the the nice thing is that I'm an academic. I'm at a university, and universities, as the uh, right wingers will tell you, are hotbeds of liberalism and all that kind of stuff. And so I have other people on the faculty here who share my views. So it's it's, it's this tiny little island in the sea of of republicanness. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's a, it's that 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 makes it tolerable. And you know, also I got to say, uh, small town living actually has some nice advantages. I can get everywhere on foot. I can just walk anywhere. It's safe. It's quiet. It's calm. Um, it's I wouldn't say it's crime free, but uh, it's it's fairly good. And uh, it's 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 a restful place to live. You know, it's it's not that you have things going on all the time. You can actually slow down have a cup of coffee, take your time, and and enjoy the quiet life. And then, of course, on the weekends, I escaped to New York and Washington, D.C., and places like that. <laughs> <laughs> the other America. Uh, right. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, we're talking to P.Z. Myers, who's the author of the book, The Happy Atheist. You can join in if you want. Give us a call at 201-209-9368 or join us at WFMU. Org. Um, so you brought up that you are an academic in this small town that you live in. You are a professor of biology. You, you're a scientist. You teach science. And a lot of your book deals with the contemporary intersections of religion and science. And there seem to be a number of your peers who want to have it both ways. They want to reconcile science and with religion. Can you tell us about some of these folks like Ken Miller and why you find this extremely troublesome? Yeah, that there, there is this there's this fundamental disconnect between the way you think religiously and the way you think scientifically. And, yeah, I mentioned a few people like Ken Miller. I, I actually have a lot of respect for Ken Miller. He's a smart guy. He does good science. But, unfortunately, he's usually trotted out as an example of a religious science because when he's not in the lab, he's, he's going to go to Catholic Church on the weekends and things like that, mm-hmm. which is fine. People can do that. They can they can live lives where you are doing mathematics one moment and you're writing poetry the next. And the the problem comes when you start mixing them up. And I, I think that's Ken Miller's failing is that he tries to mix them up. You you can't really be religious when you're doing science. Science requires an open mind. It requires that you are going to pay attention to the evidence, that you're going to go wherever the evidence takes you. And religion says the opposite. It says, here's a conclusion. It's already written in your holy book or it's passed on by your priest, and you will derive that conclusion one way or the other. Uh, so it's, it's really religious think, thinking is antithetical to scientific thinking. And again, uh, I know what objections people will have. It's that, oh, I know a scientist who's a devout Christian. Fine. Like I said, that can happen. That's compartmentalization. Uh, I don't know. I always find that suspect. Like, are you really a scientist? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think they really are. Uh, You know, in the book, I I mention my my counterexample is Dennis Rader, who is the... uh, He's known as the bind, torture, kill murderer, uh-huh. who is a devout Lutheran. And we don't sit around trying to make excuses for how serial killing and religion are compatible. Well, some of us could, but um, but we we don't we we don't say that. We recognize that 
religious people have objections to killing people as well. Yes. Uh, but it's the same thing here, where you can have people who are scientific and people who are religious, and you can have some people who have both, but they're not both at the same time. PZ, let's go to the phones real quick. We have uh, uh, someone, I think, who's, who's uh, this is Frank from Brooklyn here. Hey, Frank, are you there? Hey, Frank? Hi, how's it going? How are you going? Um, Thanks for um, calling in here. You're on WFMU. So, um, you know, as a, a fairly uh, left-leaning uh, person that's not in any way religious, I just am curious as to why you guys have to be so cut and dry about this. Like, anybody that's had any kind of, like, outer-body experience knows that we're all part of one giant consciousness, and consciousness is difficult to explain scientifically. So, like, I know I agree that about everything you're saying about these crazy fundamental, like, uh, you know, I live in Brooklyn, and I see these buses where they keep the women on the back of the bus that are going to Muncie every day, and I'm like, you know, I'm protesting, I'm like, how are these women not allowed to sit in the front of the bus, it makes no sense, you know, but I think there's a big separation between that and knowing that we're all connected somehow, on some level, everything in the universe is interconnected, and I would consider that some kind of a higher energy, higher God, I, I, you know, like, I, I consider that somewhat spiritual and somewhat religion, but I think right. you're, you're saying religion is a, like a practice by a group of people, like a, I don't know if your definition of religion is what you know, a lot yeah. of left-leaning non-religious semi-spiritual people are, you know what I'm saying? Well, well, right. No, I, 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 I get this complaint all the time from people who say they are spiritual but not religious and that my objections against religion do not apply to them. Uh -huh. uh, and I'm, I'm afraid this is, this is where I get all confrontational, and i got to say, spirituality is a bunch of hooey, too. It's nonsense. Uh, that you can say, yeah, we're all connected in some way, but I call that gravity and the electromagnetic force and things like that. Um, we're not connected by spirit or by consciousness that it's um, very easy for our brains to generate illusions of greater consciousness reaching out through our minds, but we aren't really doing it. None of this stuff, stuff ever survives any kind of critical test or evaluation yeah. of capability. Um, there's this process called confabulation, which is where the brain is really, really good at filling in gaps in its knowledge. And it will do so by just inventing stuff spontaneously because your brain hates discontinuities. It does not like the idea that it's, it's not functioning properly some for, for some period of time. So what you'll often have with these illusions is, is there's complicated phenomena going on in your brain. It may be drug-related, it may be trauma-related, whatever. And your consciousness tries to make sense of it. And the way it will sometimes make sense of it is it will say, oh, you're hooked up to a global consciousness, you're aware of something beyond yourself, but it's all pretend, it's yeah, not really yeah. happening. No, and, and you know, I would have to say that for those, you know, Frank, thanks so much for calling in, and if anyone else wants to join in, they can give us a call at 201-209-9368. But, you know, I would, I would add to that, though, it seems that for a lot of people who are asking those questions about, you know, uh, higher consciousness or belonging to a group or, or feeling connected, I find that, you know, so I would have to say that uh, my mother was one of those people, and, and finding her way to becoming a born-again uh, Christian really seemed like a big tragedy in that sense. And it seems that 
you know, to be confrontational about it, that uh, religion might actually be a worse turn to make for those, you know, who aren't already on that track. Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't want to come across in, as somebody who thinks that people who believe that are bad people. I, I don't think that at all. Uh, you know, what I found, even among religious people, people who are devout and even people who are conservative, is that typically they're good people who have deep interests and cares that I can share. You know, they're worried about their family. They're worried about their future. It's just that what they've done is they've come up with a fantastically bad way of addressing those issues. And so religion is a mistake. It doesn't lead you into any correct path. Uh Uh, Spirituality is sort of plastering over your mistakes with an illusion that there's a higher power, there's a goodness, there's a broader consciousness. But it's not really addressing root problems. Yes, yes. So, um, but coming back to science here, you know, you 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 have a great way of uh, kind of ending your at least your thoughts on this. You say science and religion are two fundamentally different things. Science works, religion does not. <laughs> that made me laugh. I mean, I I, I like that a lot. But uh, uh, and for me, I guess that's why I've I've felt you know. Uh, I have a few scientists in my family as well that uh, I've sort of moved on from that. But, you know, the idea, coming back to the idea of the religious scientist where we were before we took the call, um, it seems that the the grand narrative of human history, at least the last couple hundred years, has science continually debunking and kicking religious superstitions ass for <laughs> centuries. And And so when it comes to folks like Ken Miller, it seems that, are we? Are you saying that we have a long ways to go, or is there something even deeper going on here in our country with with the American way of trying to smash those two together? Well, you know, the the thing is that uh, I I really would not object to an America that was full of Ken Millers, right? Ken mm-hmm. Miller is actually pretty good at keeping these separate. Uh, it's better than the Creation Museum. <laughs> yes. Yes, when Ken Miller talks about evolution, he talks about straight evolution. He doesn't throw in any religious concepts, for the most part, and he doesn't accept the nonsense that creationists will perpetrate. So uh, he's he's got the right attitude there, and it's just that. And and I would also say that it's fine if he goes to church. You know, I'm not going to say that somebody's bad because they go to church because most people do, and I think most people are good people. Uh, The problem is when you try and mingle them. When you try to say, here's this little boundary and where we allow religion and science to overlap and all too often what that leads to is people deciding that religious truths are more important than scientific truths and i disagree profoundly with that yeah let's take another call we have alex in uh bedsty here hey alex welcome to wfmu hey there. i kind of have a two-part question um i guess one part is just about how it is problematic if someone's approaching science with a set of beliefs before they get into discovering, but I would argue that atheism is also a set of beliefs believing that there is no God. So I I would see a problem in both ways, having a real strong belief in religion, having real strong belief that God doesn't exist when approaching science, because then you are kind of looking towards science to explain what you believe mm-hmm. either way, which whichever way that is. And the next question would be just about um, Eastern practices of medicine, which is connected spiritually, but we haven't really scientifically 
figured that stuff out. Even though acupuncture works, I don't really know any scientific proofs about those energy meridians. So those are just my two thoughts and questions. All right, Alex, thanks for, for giving us okay. a call. So, PZ, I know you get this one a lot, uh, the first part of that question about sort of atheism becoming a set of beliefs, too. So, so and you write, you, you, you write on that a few times. Right. That um, it's, you know, there, there is the conclusion, which is that there is no God. But, the, but science is about a process, and that is how do you arrive at those conclusions. That, you know, I've, I've written that if some evidence came up that showed me that there was a God that was not explainable in terms of the phenomena that we do understand, that was somehow new and weird and outside of our universe and all this sort of thing, then what I would have to do is change my mind. I would have to recognize that here was something that was outside the scope of science that I needed to recognize. Uh, the, the, there are a couple problems with that, though. One is that the religious people will not give me a clear statement of what this evidence might look like. You know, when we're doing science, what we do is we try to have clear, specific hypotheses that we can evaluate, you know, that we can test alternatives and so forth. Um, there is no such thing for religion. Think of prayer, for instance. You know, prayer sounds like something we ought to be able to test, and people have tried to test it. But it doesn't matter whether prayer works or not. The religious people will have an excuse and and not change their mind. And over and over again, we've done these ta tests that evaluate specific claims of religion when they make specific claims, and religion fails. So, you know... Uh, I'm not sitting here with a preconception that, that there has to be no God. That's a conclusion I've reached by looking at the evidence. But in particular, when I'm doing science, I'm just looking at the phenomena that are, that are under my microscope. Yeah. That's what matters. You know, I, I think one of the, the things that I find troublesome about the first part of that question, though, is, and, and this is, you know, goes beyond even science, it just seems that, that taking the debate on those terms is it's all one-sided. And, and, you know, this goes back, I think it's the idiot and for Dostoevsky, but, you know, and that it's made clear that the, that if you are arguing against God, you're still a believer, you know, like one of the characters, I think, actually says something to that line. And this is where I felt sort of disengaging seemed to be, you know, not only uh, making life better, but it also seems, you know, if that's going to be the rules, that if you're going to be, it, it just seems that, that under that framework that it's always your, uh, it should be that science should be controlling the, the debate. Right. You know, like they can't even go that far. Yeah, and, they, and they're trying to have it both ways. You know, if you're saying that religion is a religion and not believing in a religion is religion, then you're basically saying everything is a religion. <laughs> and you know, that, that, that dilutes the term to the point where it's utterly useless. So, um, you know, that this is another objection you can make, is that if you've, if you've got an argument that is so vague and nebulous that you can't define your terms, mm -hmm. that your terms gradually expand to compass everything and every phenomena, then you don't have a useful idea. It's simply saying, what is, is, and that doesn't help us at all. Sure, sure. But I also think it touches on something that you write about, which is, uh, um, so when Christopher Hitchens' book came out a few years ago, you cite uh, 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 something that Stanley Fish wrote about criticizing a lot of academics and writers who are throwing all everything about religion out 
the window, sort of saying that that's the true fundamentalism. And it seems like there's this desire both on, on, all, on both sides of the political spectrum to say that, wait a minute, we can't just toss it all. That's very disrespectful, but we should be looking at some things in religion that, we, that are very important to the fabric of American life. And, and you, you, I, I think you, you, you find this distressing as well, and I, and I, w- I wonder yeah. if you could talk about that. that. You know, that, that there, there is a reality to religion, which is as a sociological and psychological phenomenon. And the study of religion in those contexts is appropriate and good, and we should be doing more of that to figure out why the heck people believe these strange things. Um, but it's, it's got to meet certain standards. You know, the second part of his question is a really good one, too, because it, it actually fits into this, and it's a perfect example is acupuncture. Um, acupuncture doesn't work. It's been tested multiple times. It does nothing. It's nothing better than the placebo effect. The magical meridians that they talk about don't exist. We've taken cadavers apart. We've done surgeries on live people. We go looking there. There's nothing special there to mark a place where a needle goes in in acupuncture. And yet you've got people who will continue to make these assertions that it's, it's somehow working. You know, by definition, when something doesn't do what it's supposed to do, it is not working. So um, acupuncture is a total failure in that regard. And it's, it's the same with religion. Somehow people can say, here's what religion is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring you consolation. It's supposed to put you in touch with a supreme being. It's supposed to give that supreme being the opportunity to exercise its will on you, whatever. And yet, when you actually sit down and look at what it does, it doesn't do any of those things. Okay. Um, so, uh, Alex, if you're still listening, uh, I guess uh, that's the, the confrontation coming in here. Uh, you describe <laughs> yourself as a confrontation, but you've, you really are. You've got this, you know, middle America. Very, you're very, you sound like a very nice man. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I fool everyone, right? <laughs> sure, sure. But, you know, uh, I want to talk about the confrontational uh, nature of your work because I, I, I found it very humorous. And, 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 and I was wondering, you know, where, where does that come from, though? The, the the you know it seems that in, in in many respects it would be easier just to turn off. You talk about uh, a lot of the mail you receive, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about why in a minute. But I'm I'm wondering where the the controvers- controversial edge comes from for you. Uh huh. Well, you know, it's it's partly because that's how you teach. You know that uh, that's my profession. I'm a biology teacher here here at a small university. And um, people don't seem to appreciate this, but teaching is a radical act. What you are doing is going to people and changing their minds. You're trying to persuade them of something that they did not know before. And, you know, the, the typical sort of stereotypical view of how we do that is that the teacher stands up at the front of the room and lectures at people or calmly and politely inform them here's how it, the world works and you will accept this and you will regurgitate it on an exam and then I'll give you an A and then you'll go out and get a job. Uh, that's not education. That's not how it works. What you do is you confront people with facts, with ideas, and you ask them to think about them. And often you do that in ways that force them to address the, the conflicts in their own mind. So I'm constantly asking my students to simply write 
something about this subject, and I don't tell them what the right answer is. There may not be a right answer. What I want them to do is is address the difficulties in the subject. Yeah, yeah, but you know, there's a word that the religious have for that, and it's called uh, sacrilege. And you really like this word. Uh, in <laughs> fact, you want to celebrate it, turn it more into a badge of of honor. Yes, that, that it's it's what we ought to be doing more of is is confronting sacred cows and and asking whether they're correct or not. And uh, again, it comes from education and science. This is what we do in science all the time. If you're getting complacent and thinking that you've got the complete answer, uh, you're probably wrong, and it's time to start thinking about what you can do to shake things up. We evaluate scientific facts by testing them to destruction. We actually sit down and try to prove that our cherished ideas are wrong, and if we do this over and over again and they hold up, then we say, oh, you know, that's a pretty good idea. It's pretty robust. It's not falling apart on me. So I think I'll continue working with that. Uh, and, and, and so the, it's the same thing here, is that religion doesn't like that. Religion wants you to accept the dogma. But what we need to do more of is actually confront religious people with their own ideas and ask them if this is really true. For instance, is it really true that when you have a communion wafer, it turns into the body of Jesus? <laughs> well, well, hold on a second. This is your uh, moment of sacrilegious fame. So if we could just uh, back up here and uh, tell us the story of the communion wafer. And, 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 and if you could uh, tell us the story, and I, I want to know what this taught you about where we are with the limits of sacrilegious uh, uh, yeah. today. Right. In America. It was, well, it, it was a, a fairly simple thing, is that a student in Florida um, went to a Catholic service, and he walked back with a communion wafer. He didn't eat it, and he was just going to show it to his friend who wasn't Catholic and was sitting there. And um, the people in the congregation got very upset with him and basically attacked him, trying to rip this out of his hands, and he ran away and fled with it to his dorm room. Anyway, after this, the priests and various other people that are familiar to you New Yorkers like Bill Donahue um, decided that this kid was evil, needed to be kicked out of school, was horrible. And so what I was doing was just stepping in by proxy, and I said, okay, if if this is so horrible, um, I'm going to do something even worse. I'm going to desecrate a communion wafer, send me one. I didn't happen to have a hand, handy stock of them right there, so... Um, I put out a call for people to send me a communion wafer, and uh, somebody did. They actually sent me one that they had documented with a video being blessed by a priest. So it was it was definitely, by Catholic doctrine, Jesus sitting there in my envelope. And then I read up on what you do to desecrate a wafer, and it turns out the traditional way is to take a nail and drive it through there, and then, of course, it's supposed to bleed and, oh, you know, man. It's supposed to <laughs> and all these sorts of things. So I did that, and nothing happened. And then I threw it in the trash and took a picture of it. Um, and that got people very upset. Because you documented this on your blog. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I tried to be an equal opportunity desecrator, so I also ripped up some pages of the Koran and punched the nail through that. And then because I didn't want to make it seem like I was just saying there are certain things you're allowed to, I also took a copy of The God Delusion, by Richard Dawkins and did likewise. Uh, and the thing is, the the people who the uh, people who worship Muhammad weren't so upset about that. I got a grand total of two letters from people, and they all said, "Yes, that's a good thing to do." 
Um, the people who read The God Delusion said, yeah, go, let's buy more copies. Um, and then the Catholics just blew up and melted down. It was it was spectacular. <laughs> well, you and uh, Salman Rushdie rode the sacrilege train to fame and glory, but <laughs> it, it does seem that we are entering into a more dangerous era. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the YouTube story, or or you you talk about the priest in um, uh, Florida who wanted to burn the Koran. Again, right. that's not even like the sacrilege that you're practicing. It's like the religious people won't even leave us that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is, I was kind of surprised by the response, because I expected that what they would do is rationalize it. Because, you know, religious people really can be rational, and they can argue around. You know, I expected people to say things like, well, it didn't really count because it wasn't in the church, or because you were an unbeliever, it didn't really do anything. Uh, but I got quite the opposite, and that's what surprised me, is... I had people writing to me complaining that I was literally torturing Jesus, that Jesus was suffering great pains because of what I was doing, um, that that was actually Jesus that I had harmed, um, that, that they wrote that I was holding Jesus hostage, and I was, it was all these making him claims. Making him cry. So if you're just tuning in, we're listening to P.Z. Myers, author of the book The Happy Atheist. You can join us if you'd like. Give us a call at 201-209-9368 or check us out on the AccuPlaylist page at WFMU.org. Let's take a call from Kathy here. Hey, Kathy, are you there? Hey, Kathy. Um, this is very interesting. I um, was brought up an Irish Catholic, went to um, Catholic school all my life. And um, I had a couple questions to ask um, you. First of all, um, do you celebrate any of the, the holidays, like Christmas or... Um, well, yes, I do. I celebrate Christmas also, every year. Do you believe in life after death and any thoughts on that? All right. Are they, okay. Thanks, Kathy. Yeah, you know, we're, we have this... We're, we've been fighting this war on Christmas for a number of years. And You're on the really front lines, right? You're like one of those guys, like, burning Christmas trees. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're much more... Cl- cunning than that. Uh, we've been <laughs> waging this war on Christmas, and we've won, because we've turned Christmas into a secular holiday. Uh, you can celebrate events with your family, where you give each other presents, where you have a, a good dinner, where you sit around and watch football, or whatever you feel like doing on your usual holidays, and you don't need to mention Jesus even once. It's great. <laughs> so we yeah, we have nice. a grand time every Christmas. Uh, it's well, a it's well, a well, secular well, family holiday. <laughs> and and uh, uh, do you celebrate the the? Ho- Are you still religious, Kathy? Um, I don't go to mass. I went to um, like, you know, I got kind of turned off from the whole thing growing up. Um, and I, I'm also curious about the whole spirituality thing because I feel like I'm spiritual, but listening to to you talk about this whole thing, it's it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, you know, I remember when my mom, she passed away, but she told me that faith gave her, gave her hope, like when things were really bad in her life, and that's why she kind of believed in God. So uh-huh. I don't know what, what's your thoughts <laughs> on that. You know, when things were bad, that's when she used it. Right. You know, and, and this, is, this is where it becomes very difficult for me as a confrontational person, because I, I can respect that you loved your mother and that your mother was a good person, um, and I, I would not, you know, I would not, after the fact, say that your mother was 
in, in any way bad for believing this. This is how she coped, and so it's it's acceptable. Yeah. However, personally, I I can't even figure out what spiritual means. There are no spirits. There's no ghosts. There's no souls. Nothing like this. So it's it's kind of a strange term to use. Right. And the other part of it that bothers me is. Uh, you know, it's finding consolation by lying to somebody. It's telling somebody, you know, again, I, I'm not trying to criticize your mother, but I would... Oh, no, 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 I'm totally yeah. I'm open to this whole thing, no. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the priests would do things like tell you that you're on your deathbed, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to be with St. Peter, all this sort of stuff. Um, okay. And it's it's lying to people. It's mm. telling them a falsehood to make them feel better. And... Uh, for me, you know, honesty is such an important value that 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 would be very disturbing. I I would rather go to my doctor and have them tell the truth about yeah. what's going on with me than to hear some reassuring fibs told yeah, to make yeah. me feel better. Okay. And and I think that's a, a major problem with religion is it's built upon this principle of you know, telling people nice lies like you're going to heaven and also telling them threatening lies like you will be going to hell if you don't do this. And and that bothers me a lot. Kathy, thanks for your call. Uh, we'll take some more uh, in a few minutes here. Uh, if you want to give us a call, the number here in the studio is 201-209-9368. But you know, that thing about getting hope or, or from faith or, or finding it easier to make it through uh, uh, troublesome times, I think that's where I actually do get angry. And I, and I get really, really angry because it seems that, you know, we can be very resilient. We can be very tough. And it almost seems that the church in many ways, and not all religions are, are in a way stepping in to take advantage of folks who are at that moment of weakness. And you know, it's like crystal yeah. meth. It's like, boom, these people are gone for the forever. And, it, and it's not, it's not fun. As much as I try to laugh at that, it's not funny. That's right. And you know, that that's something that bothers me a lot too is is it does a couple of things one is it it takes bravery away from people who are facing death you know face it if if you're going to die and you're coping with it and you're 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 making peace with it you are being incredibly brave and here some guy comes along and says you're doing it so you can go live in a happy hunting ground somewhere uh that's that's a cheat to me that's I, I would rather recognize the bravery of those people who struggle against it. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, the other side of it is um, that once you've lost somebody, you've really lost somebody, they're, they're dead, they're gone, you'll never get to see them again, the appropriate response is to be heartbroken and grieve. It is not appropriate at that point to say, well, oh, they're fine, they're up, they're up, dancing with angels or something because they're not yeah. that i think one of the virtues of atheism is we can have honest grief over loss and we don't have to try and plaster it over with these comforting lies yeah yeah so i, I want to talk about uh, uh some of the other positive things that that come out of atheism for you and and others because um your book uh the happy atheist is a collection and and new writings from a blog and was, uh, your, your blog which seems to be quite popular and have a community built around it i'm just wondering if you mm -hmm. could tell us about that yeah it's uh well it's a blog i started writing about 10 years ago um and it's just grown and grown and grown uh 
the book is actually a reflection of the attitudes I have there. Yes, it is confrontational. We discuss a lot of different topics. Um, and what's the know, blog called? No, it's called Feringula, which nobody can pronounce or spell. That's why I asked um, you. <laughs> it, it's P-H-A-R-Y-N-G-U-L-A. Uh, it's, a, it's a scientific term for a stage in development. Um, it's, it's a stage I happen to study in my research, so it's, that, that's why I named mm. it that. Uh, it's on a network called Free Thought Blogs, which we formed two years ago, that actually has a whole bunch of atheist bloggers who are uh, addressing these concerns about religion and science, but also, most importantly, and, and I think this is something that we really add to the discussion, is we consider social justice to be an, an integral part of atheism, that what we have is a group of people who are all committed to equality, fairness. Um, they're all very liberal and progressive and good that way, uh, and that's combined with their atheism. Yeah. So can you talk about the state of atheism as a, as a movement in America today, like, like other conventions? You, you mentioned this blog mm -hmm. network. Do you guys do meetups, costume parties, like get-togethers? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, I have been to an atheist costume party. But oh, stop yes, it. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the atheist movement is growing really rapidly right now. It's taken off. You know, I, I think we can give credit to a number of high-profile writers like uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens who've, who've spread the good word and gotten people excited about it. So it's, it's growing fast, and it's also going through some growing pains right now that... Um, we're struggling a little bit with uh, um, a movement that's got a fairly primitive hierarchical setup and uh, having some conflict with some of our leaders and things like this. But otherwise... That sounds like a church. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't it? That's a terrifying <laughs> thing. Um, you know, the thing is that, that I, I think it does sound like a church, because whenever you're trying to set up a hierarchy, whenever you're trying to say that here are these people who are at the top and they're in charge... Um, you're setting up a social structure that's prone to failure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as I said, this particular network I'm on is very much committed to an egalitarian view, which is no priests, no priest equivalents even. Uh, let's keep this a community of equals yeah. who are discussing things. And, and that's, why that, that's why there's some tension, there's some difficulty in, in how we're going to grow and resolve this. Um, you know, ultimately, atheism is a decision of conscience and intellect. It is not something that you can propagate by spreading dogmatic words. You cannot give people a set of creeds they have to follow. Uh, it's, it's a personal discovery and awareness that has to come about. And that means atheism is not quite like your religion, and it shouldn't be, and we worry mm. that if we try to impose the standard structures that people use in these organizations, it will become more like one, and we don't want that. Except, you know, at the same time, there are some really wonderful teaching moments, I feel, for lack of a better word, in, in your book that I, I, I really... Uh, found quite moving. You know, you you brought up one talking to Kathy about you know the appropriate responses to grief, and it seems that you know uh, problems with a movement 
are always going to be there, but you, if, if that's a way to teach some of these positive benefits of atheism, then uh, perhaps, you know, I, I, my, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. But, you know, it, it comes back to something, you know, probably I want to play you something here, which is an excerpt from probably one of my most important, my important pieces of media. Uh, it's from the life of Brian, Monty Python, and uh -huh. it seems to get at the heart of what I want to uh, ask you next. It's, of course, you'll recognize it right away. Yes. It's, uh... And that's the moment. <laughs> but I yeah, no, I, I love it. That's 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 the perfect encapsulation of of the dilemma we face. Is that atheism? We want people to think for yourselves. We want you all to be individuals, <laughs> and yet people always will want the shortcuts. You know, tell me what to think. How should I do this? And it, and. That's so contrary to what atheism should be. Sure, sure, sure. But as funny as that is, it's really, really deep. And, and it gets to the problem of like how you can talk about these uh, uh, benefits that you want, you believe, you know, that you wrote this book about, that you follow principles and, you, you know, you've dedicated your life to following about the benefits of what this can do for an individual's uh, uh, quality of life, like to, to, to put it as plainly, as simply as possible. Uh -huh. And it seems that you know being able to teach those is is important. I mean, so you you know obviously you're not uh, uh, proselytizing atheism, but you are interested in sharing what some of the benefits are. Yes, and and really the benefits come from having an open mind and being a critical thinker and um, you know approaching the reality of the world rather than the illusions that people try to put put up about it. And that doesn't require that you follow some particular prescription for how you live your life. It requires that you do think about it. Mm. And but, you know, well, part of it, too, is that, that it's, it's not just recognizing the words of an authority, but also uh, I emphasize strongly that the virtues are in community, that what you need to do is talk to your neighbors and your friends and your family and it's that negotiation, that building of, of a web of trust that is the real heart of community. And that does not depend on having a leader to do it. Mm -hmm. but, but that said, you know, you, you talk about well, something that was very popular here in America, the, the Purpose Driven Life, the book by Rick uh -huh. Warren. And, and again, you know, there's so many, um, you know, for centuries, so many religious uh, thinkers, uh, religious people who've said that w with atheism you don't get the purpose-driven life. And, and, and again, it, it, it seems that that's something that you and, and, and some of the people, other atheists you reference, are really fighting against or have a, have a different yeah. response to. Well, the, the way I would put it, though, is, is know that you do, your life does have purpose, but it's, it's your purpose. Um, the, you know, the Rick Warren's book was this awful, awful thing where he is telling you, here's your purpose. Your purpose is to be a slave to God for eternity. 
which isn't exactly the purpose I want to have. So, <laughs> um, and the atheist message is, there is nobody telling you what your purpose is. There is no imposition of purpose. You are not living on this earth to serve somebody or something else. That if you want to have a purpose, you'll have to find it for yourself. You know what? Let's let's. We have another call here. We're 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 coming to the end of the hour, but we have time to take a few more. If anyone wants to give us a call at two zero one two zero nine nine three six eight. But I believe this is Matthew. Hey, Matthew, are you there? Hello, Matthew. Hi. There you hey. are. I'm enjoying your show, and I don't disagree with much of what's been said. I think it's important to remember that we can look at science and religion through the reality tunnel of let's see their similarities. And they both depend a lot on belief, which I don't really subscribe to exactly. I think belief closes the mind. And the less that we believe things that are so ready-made as scientific and religious dogma, the more fresh and nimble and intelligent our mind's going to be. And I think that science and religion uh, both equally fail to answer the fundamental question that they're trying to answer. Like one of them, how and when did this, this, did this all begin? They both have a similar creation myth, which is faulty, that doesn't answer the fundamental question that can never answer what happened before the Big Bang started or that these waters came together or whatever the creation myth of, of the of the present time is saying it it's it still begats only other questions that can neither be answered neither by science and religion so, so ever I, I, and, or at least in our present development that has n not not been answered and one other thing there's so much that science does not weigh and measure something as as uh hu um as w extensively documented as the ufo phenomenon science really has very few good explanations for and well, so we well, need to go beyond science. There's only one way to view things, and it's good. Let's not throw it out. But it's just one of myriad of a radial amount of ways to look at reality. What is the atheist uh, perspective here for the UFOs? <laughs> well, Thank you, let, Matthew, let me, uh, for calling. Yeah, l let me step it back. There's a little bit before that. Um, that science is not about beliefs. Uh, science yeah. is fundamentally about empirical observations that what we build our ideas, our theories on, is a framework of concrete, strong, physical observations. Uh, yeah, I felt like he so, was sneaking that one in there. Yeah, so that, that's kind of a, that's a very common argument people make, and it's simply not true that even if we change our theories, we do not change the facts, and those continue to persist. Um, I'm going to be alienating all your listeners that here because uh, UFOs, is, is, that's, that's more nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, it's, it's, again, a case where we do have a large number of observations. These observations um, have to be taken in context, and what we discover is that when you do that, uh, you, don't need to in, you don't need to invent UFOs to explain the phenomena that people are seeing that there's a number of things that have been going on through the history of the UFO movement. Um, I would have to say part of it is fakery, part of it is misinterpretation, part of it is faulty instrumentation. I, you know, I've, for instance, seen many UFO photos that are clearly photographic artifacts. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's simply no reason, no solid data at the heart of it to believe in UFOs as 
visiting aliens. Okay, so we're 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 coming to the end of the hour here. I think we have one last call here. Uh, let's see, WFMU, you're on the air. Hello, WFMU. Hello. Hello, WFMU. No, nope. I'm not there. All right. Well, uh, we are are coming to the end of the hour. Uh, PZ, I can't thank you enough for for spending the whole hour with us. Oh, it's been great fun. So, yeah, I've, 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 these, these have been stimulating questions that <laughs> your listeners have brought to me. The book is called The Happy Atheist. It's out now from Pantheon, and uh, the, the, we'll have a link to the unpronounceable blog name. <laughs> on the, on the, you, just, you just can't make it easy. If you see, it's like, you know, the church. Oh, I the, can, though. If you, if you just Google PZ, it turns out that I'm right at the top. Oh, really? Yeah, Not, makes it easy. Not bad. All right, well, we'll be back uh, next week, uh, so thanks again, PZ. Yeah, thank you very much. So stay tuned next for Nardwar. Listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You're listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Dan Forer, the director of a brand new movie called Sample This, all about the incredible Bongo Band. 
Sample This is opening in North America in select cities starting September the 13th. You can also check it out on iTunes. It's all about, as I mentioned, the incredible bongo band and how they recorded the tune Apache, which is the ground zero foundation for hip-hop. And uh, that tune just happened to be recorded in my hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada? Ground zero for hip-hop? Stay tuned to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show today as we explore this with Dan Forer, director of the movie Sample This. And also, as I mentioned, the movie is opening across North America September the 13th, opening in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, D.C. of the Washington variety, Dallas, Atlanta, Phoenix, Baltimore, San Diego, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Bellingham, Washington... Portland, Oregon, Detroit, and one Canadian opening at present in Toronto, Ontario. If you're not in those cities, you can check it out on iTunes starting September the 13th. It's called Sample This, and you can also get more information at samplethismovie.com. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Dan Forer, director of Sample This, and we're going to kick it off with a tune by the incredible bongo band Sharp Nine. All on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show on WFMU.
are you? Uh, I am Dan Forer, and I am the director, writer, and producer of a new documentary called Sample This. Dan, please tell me a little bit about Sample This. What is Sample This? Can you please explain Sample This for people that maybe don't understand what Sample This is about? Because it is very confusing and very interesting. Well, it's the, the film is about a group, a studio group called the Incredible Bongo Band. And they recorded an album in 1973 uh, right here in Vancouver, Canada. And it wound up being considered, one of the tracks from the album, um, Apache, wound up being considered the national anthem of hip-hop. And we just heard a track from the album called Sharp Nine. What can you tell the people about Sharp Nine? Have hip-hoppers heard that song? I think they have, although it's one of the, the lesser-known tracks from, from the, because uh, there were two bongo band albums, and it's from the first album. It was recorded in Vancouver, and uh, I just always thought it had a good break. It's Jim Gordon and King Arison, and uh, it's, uh, it's from the first album. Now, the first thing I learned from your movie, Sample This, and we're speaking to Dan Forer, the director, the author, the producer, the guy who put his life on the line for Canadian hip-hop because, well, it was recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The national anthem of hip-hop was recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So Vancouver could be the birthplace of hip-hop. That's always what I've thought of. The first thing I learned was the guy's name is not Michael Viner. It's Michael Viner. Thank you for teaching me that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, until I started uh, getting to know um, about him, I mean, the, most people that don't know say Viner, but uh, it was Viner, in fact. So when I'm saying the national anthem of hip-hop was recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Vancouver is the birthplace of hip-hop, and I get no objections from you, Dan, is that true? Am I right to say this? I've been saying this for years. How is the national anthem of hip-hop recorded in Vancouver. How is Vancouver the birthplace of hip-hop? Well, I mean, it was a strange set of circumstances that, that, why, they, why they wound up in Vancouver, because the, the couple of the tracks from the album were actually recorded in L.A., and there was a bit of uh, monkey business with CanCon, and I think that's why they decided they, they, they got a hit out of uh, Bongo Rock, and uh, they claimed it was Canadian, and it wasn't. And then they decided to do an album. And I thought, I think that they were going to cover their tracks by coming to Vancouver to do the to do the album. And uh, and I think that's why they wound up here. Technically, it is the birthplace of hip hop because, of course, Cool Herc found the probably deleted Bongo Band album in a record store in the Bronx, and uh, he used it in his infamous Merry Go 